Spring is in the air at Littleton Coin Company, and we want to help you brighten your collection. Visit us at littletoncoin.com all month long to enjoy 15% off your purchase. With a wide selection of coins, paper money, supplies, and more, Littleton Coin Company has something for every collector's taste. Use promo code SPRING at littletoncoin.com for 15% off your purchase all month long. Restrictions apply. Littleton Coin Company. Serving collectors since 1945. This electrical marvel will make it possible for you to sleep again. And it will also get rid of all those bad waking dreams that you've been telling me about. We are at the dawn of a new age. In just two months, it will be the year 1900. A new century. The 20th century. A century of... Electricity. The brain itself is an electrical machine. It's nothing but a machine. When it malfunctions, then the brain produces useless excess currents. And these excess currents are our dreams and delusions. Just like the dreams that you have, Dorothy. Now we have the means to control these excess currents. Would you like to go for a ride, Dorothy? No Way Jose. You can find me on No Way Jose YouTube channel, all the major auto catchers, Odyssey, and Rumble as well. Today, my guest is Lisa Pease. We're continuing our RFK series. She's the author of A Lie Too Big to Fail, The Real History of the Assassination of Robert Robert F. Kennedy. I forgot his middle name for a second there. Uh, so we're continuing that. Uh, me and her are taking a break from the trenches of Twitter with the recent happenings. Uh, which, ironically, if you guys watch the show, you know, or have been watching the series, you know more than the average person, considering uh, the main supposed assassin of, of uh, RFK, Sirhan Sirhan, was, uh, was a Palestinian. And uh, yeah, so if you've been paying attention, you know history didn't just start a few days ago, and there's a lot more to the story than meets the eye. Uh, but I don't know if we're going to do it. It's, it's hard. We're, we're, we're holding ourselves back and going to do it. This, today, I think we'll go a little bit more to like the legal stuff, uh, going to that more. 
I do want to remind you guys how this works. Uh, right now, I'm doing a live stream for my patrons on the 10th. But if you're a one of my patron, or if you're not a patron, you're gonna have to week, wait about a week or so uh, to whenever I do drop it publicly. Uh, but yeah, the patrons get it early. It's patreon.com snowyjose2020. I want to recognize my sponsors on there real quick. That's the highest level. I have my my buddy Toad uh, from Tower Gang at Tower Gang Toad. Uh, he's my co-host on Tower Gang. Uh, so go check out that show if you like offensive comedy. If that's not your thing, then don't don't go watch that. I also have at Abrogate D's, mutual of mine on Twitter. Then Kevin B. Clark, a full-time guitarist and private music teacher in New York area. So if you're looking for a guitarist for a gig or someone to teach you how to play some music, he's your guy. Then at Z-O-V-E-R-A-C-K, another mutual of mine. Then at underscore infinite zeal. Uh, yeah, that's patreon.com. It's Jose 2020 uh, do remind you guys if you want to get some of this merch, like my uh, Terrence Hickey didn't kill himself, uh, you can get toplobster.com. Oh, yeah, I always keep forgetting this every episode to give shout outs for the intros. That intro is from my buddy on Twitter, at Jalion Claybold. Uh, he was the guy I had on recently on my Rumble exclusive episodes on Columbine because I was not comfortable putting that on uh, YouTube. And we're getting ready to go into another spicy uh, episode or series, depending on how deep we end up going into it. Uh, I'm not even comfortable saying what it is on this. I'll make uh, I'll make give a little hints. Uh, it's the ultimate no-no in the in the parapolitics world. It's a a certain renowned uh, conspiracy guy that's you know kind of hated by a lot of people on the left and the right in the conspiracy community and also beloved, uh, who got a, a big old lawsuit for this recently. So that's why I'm not releasing that on YouTube. Uh, I don't even know how I'm going to go about putting that on Patreon. i got to figure out crafty ways to do that because Patreon's bad about that too. So here we are trying to jump through hoops of uh, censorship. And I'll go ahead and tell you. I, I mean, I don't know about exactly uh, my buddy, Jolion, what his uh, – or, or Tim Tuttle. Some people know him as that. Um, you know, I don't know what his take is, but I'm assuming it's probably, probably similar to mine. He's done more looking – I don't think it was completely fake at all. I don't I don't take that take at all. I think it's a little bit silly. I think it's a little more complicated than that, but we'll get into that. So if you want that, it's rumble. But enough of that. Let's go ahead and get Lisa on here and get right into it. Hey, Lisa, how you doing? I'm good. How are you? Good, good. Uh, good to take a break, like I said, from uh, Twitter. Uh, yeah, it's been con- nonstop there. propaganda. Uh, it's just, you get, I've gotten to the point where I'm arguing with people and they're dropping, dropping like five, six, you know, propaganda, pro, like uh, <laughs> propaganda talking points that have already been debunked, like you know, a day ago. But they're it's like, and it's like, what am I gonna do? Point out six things that they got wrong, and they'll be like, "Oh, you're full of it." You know, like, I just don't have time. Yeah, for that. at some point you just have to not engage. <laughs> it's not worth the time. Yeah, yeah. I, I mean, when I just, I just after a while stop engaging, but I just, I just mm-hmm. do it at my own leisure. But I'm glad to have you back. Normally, I have you do an intro, but I, I gave you a little one today already. So I, I yeah, think, I think you know, we're people, fine. <laughs> and I, I do want to get into it, respect your time. I want to start off uh, my patrons. At the $5 level, I allow you guys to – I give you guys a code where if you want to show up the live chat, you can put in the live chat, give you a little code so I can recognize you on the $5 or higher. Uh, or you can give me questions ahead of time. Uh, and I had one person who saw you were reading Aberration – uh, and was wanting to see the similarities between Sirhan and uh, Sirhan Sirhan and Timmy McVeigh. Uh, we talked a little beforehand. I don't think you've quite gone far enough to it, but yeah. you said, I let him. <laughs> but know I have that. some impressions. Yeah. Yeah, but yeah, you can you can tell impressions, but also if you want to expand, maybe some other uh, individuals that uh, you know that you know that some people would probably know of. 
uh, that kind of have similar thing. Because once you start digging into this, there's quite a few individuals who fit this. Uh, you know, mm -hmm. having these markers of being prone to disassociation and or being highly suggestible. Uh, so if you want to, if you want to name off some of those, however you want to yes. go into that, <laughs> uh, be a fun little topic of discussion and, uh, you know, yeah, well, it's, in a way it's a, a topic that I spoke on in Memphis in spring of this year, I went to a conference on political assassinations of the sixties and, you know, but I talked about, you know, Mark David Chapman who shot Lennon, you know, another really similar case where, the guy isn't really making sense. He's clearly behind Lenin when Lenin is shot in the front of his chest. How is that possible? You know, there, there are so many similarities in these cases. And with Timothy, Timothy, I can't even say his name, Timothy McVeigh. Sorry, I'm a little tired. Um, his first, like when he first talked to a public defender before this big defense team came in, he said that he was an agent of the government sent to infiltrate these neo-Nazi groups. And I wondered if that was maybe the only time he told the truth. And then somehow, you know, when his defense team came in, which included a hypnotist, you know, a, a psychiatrist who did hypnosis on him. And I haven't, I truly, I'm still in the prologue. I'm really in the beginning phases of the book. But that caught my attention right off the bat because, I'm pretty sure it's not standard at criminal trials to bring in hypnotists, but it seems to be standard when, you know, the government is involved. So there's something really weird about this case. And I'm really looking forward to reading the rest of the book. But, you know, another case, James O'Reilly, he had seen a hypnotist six times in L.A. before he went to Memphis and didn't shoot Martin Luther King, <laughs> you know, but... It's funny because I, I read interviews with him and it seemed, and, and Jack Ruby too. It's like, I feel like I could put those guys parallel. They want to tell the truth, but something in their brain keeps them. It's like a little locking mechanism where they can't get over this hurdle to tell us the rest of the story. And both of their accounts come out as a little incoherent. They don't really fit. And they have this kind of patness to it that just doesn't make sense. And of course, in the case of Jack Ruby, Jolly West <laughs> met with him. Now, oddly enough, in Jolly West's notes, Jolly West being one of the CIA's known uh, hypnotist programmer types, worked on the mind control programs. This one's acknowledged. There are a lot we can suspect, but he's acknowledged CIA. And evidently his files are at UCLA. And boy, if I ever get a lot of free time, which... I don't think I will in the near future, but I would love to go through his files and see what's there and who he was corresponding with. Because Jolly West shows up in the Patty Hearst trial, and I think there's some connection with him and one of the Manson girls. Um, I forget which one. It was, I mean, they were all convicted. Um, and then, you know, with Jack Ruby in his notes, he, he describes a man who sounds like he's already hypnotized, which made me wonder if there were two hypnotists with Jack Ruby. One of them got to him first and Jolly West came in to do cleanup because maybe the first one wasn't working. And Jack Ruby literally like shoved himself into his the walls of his cell, things normal people don't do, but somebody might do under hypnosis. And here's the other thing. When you are under hypnosis, you're going to find these very innocent explanations for your behavior even though they don't make sense. And, you know, one guy, in, I 
quote a story in my book where a guy was hypnotized to like, I think it was tell the alphabet backwards. I'd have to go reread that section. But when he did that, and then he was asked why he did that, of course, he made up this really bizarre explanation for why he was reciting the alphabet backwards. He had no idea that he had been programmed to do exactly that. Another guy did know he had been programmed, but he couldn't resist it. I talk about a guy who um, had a, a professor who was demonstrating the power of compulsion under hypnosis, that if you're given an instruction, it can be very hard not to follow it. So this one guy, you know, young, bright psychology student said, okay, I'm going to bet you a dollar that I'm going to be able to withstand this. And, and the guy gave him a very simple thing, like you're going to pick up a deck of cards and start playing with them. And the guy like started towards the cards and then he stopped himself. And this happened like three or four times. And finally he's like, Oh my God, I'm just going to do it. He picked up the cards and he gave him the dollar. He's like, I know I've been programmed to do this. I know this happened to me under hypnosis and yet I can't resist it. Now, you know, I'd like to think if he'd been told to kill somebody, he'd have a little more willpower. You know, it's like, what's the point of resisting playing a deck of cards? It's not that big a deal, but it did show the power that when he was consciously trying to win a bet, he couldn't because the hypnosis was that strong. So, yeah, and boy, there's a mass hypnosis going on right now in the media as we speak. I mean, we were talking before the show, stories of 40 babies beheaded. And, you know, I heard that and I'm like, I've, I've heard these kind of stories at the start of every war. And they always prove not to be true. So now that I'm much older, I, I've learned to be very skeptical. <laughs> Um, in my youth, I believed all these stories and people retweet this stuff as if it's meaningful and it's not. And so, you know, a line I always repeat to myself that I've read many times over the years is the first casualty of war is the truth. <laughs> so pretty much everything you hear for the next few weeks is probably going to be not true, <laughs> especially if it's really incendiary. So listen, you know, take a breath take a moment. Um, and I was also mentioning, watch the film Wag the Dog, because it's about how that kind of propaganda is made. And uh, it, it's it's a comedy, but it's also very important and very relevant. So, okay. Absolutely. <laughs> Go ahead. Absolutely. I agree. Uh, definitely uh, take a moment. Anytime there's any sort of major world thing, whether it's COVID, Ukraine, global war on terror, Syria, uh, I, 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 <laughs> anything, any major, any hot button thing, especially when it's like, you know, a lot, particularly war, uh, anything coming out from the outset, you know, we, I, the, the thing that's crazy, people falling for this, we just went through this with Ukraine, same thing happened. This one's been, I think from my, this feels like way more ramped up, uh, you yeah. know, as far as propaganda, <laughs> but same stuff, all these horror stories come out from both sides. Uh, I'm not even just saying mm -hmm. one side or the other. Uh, take oh, no. a minute, wait. Most of the time, if you pay attention and look at the proper sources, you'll see within like, especially in today's age, a lot of times it'll be within an hour or two, you'll be like, oh, oh, here's corroborating sources or, or no, this is BS. And you know, right. it, it pays to not be foolish. I've seen so much nonsense. I saw Shapiro was retweeting stuff that was just some dude that was like, yeah, I have a buddy who said this and it, it, yep, this is true. That's not, yeah. <laughs> Anybody can say that, right? Yeah. Anybody can say that. <laughs> yeah, I mean the 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 forty babies was just some random reporter chick somewhere said that, 
And then I, I don't remember who said, but apparently I think some some Israeli army official later then said, no, we don't have anything confirming that as of yet. So to be fair, maybe something later yeah. will come out, but you know, yeah. people jump the gun on that. I doubt it, right. but we'll see. Right. <laughs> but yeah. either way, here we are. Uh, we're we're going to get back into the RFK story. Uh, where, where we're at now is we're kind of getting into the trial side of things. Uh, but I figured it would behoove us to start out to kind of go into the characters, maybe defense attorneys. I mean, I don't know if you go as deep as jurists, just any, mm-hmm. you know, people of interest, the prosecution, the judge, anybody who you think, because I know oh, there yeah. are a lot of shady characters <laughs> involved, uh, that, right. you know, especially amongst the defense, uh, that, you know, once you start seeing their motives, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> then you start realizing, oh, why is it all these lawyers uh, for these hot button, uh, you know, uh, def- like these big government def- defenses, uh, always seem to be these CIA approved lawyers. I don't know why. Uh, that's weird. Yeah. But uh, yeah. I'll let you, I'll give the floor to you. Let you go into it because I, I I know you have a lot to say on the topic. I do, I do. <laughs> and the first lawyer that was assigned was the public defender. I mean, that's usually what happens if you go in and you're poor, and you know your your first call isn't to a private attorney. You're going to get the public defender. And there was a guy named Wilbur Littlefield, who I think probably would have done an excellent job. So quickly, he had to be replaced because he didn't want anybody who could find out the truth and tell it in this particular case. And so the next person who visits Sirhan in jail is this guy, Abraham Lincoln Weirin, A.L. Weirin. And he was such an interesting character to me in another context related to the JFK case that I dug into his background there because he was in a debate with Mark Lane at UCLA. And Mark Lane said, like, even if Lee Harvey Oswald was innocent, really innocent, do you think he should have been let go? And A.L. Weirin is like, no, I still think, you know, we should have hung it on him, you know, because we didn't want a big conspiracy, you know. And I'm like, even if he's innocent, you're going to blame the guy? And this, and A.L. Weirin, like, worked for the ACLU. And what a lot of people don't know is, again, the ACLU, the American Civil Liberties Union, has deep ties to the CIA. There's a wonderful book by Agnes McKenzie called Secrets, where he talks about that and their long history together. And so so this guy who may or may not have CIA connections, and he'd been at like a communist in his youth. And then he's talking like this in older age, which makes me wonder was he really a communist and he was like blackmailed and turned around or was he never a communist and he was like posing as a communist to flush out, you know, as counterintelligence to find the other communists because that, that happens. But in any case, so AL we're in then when Robert Blair Kaiser, an author, then a, a stringer for time life magazine, which by the way, had like the closest relationship with the CIA of all the print media Alan Dulles was huge friends with Henry Luce. The Luce Press included Time Magazine, Life Magazine, and you know dozens of other magazines. And Robert Blair, Blair Kaiser had just been writing about Vatican II under Pope John the Twenty Third, who was replaced by James Angleton's longtime asset Giovanni Montini, who then became Pope Paul the sixth or whatever his number was, you know, following this. So that was interesting. But anyway, um, Robert Blair Kaiser made this offer. He's like, let me into the defense and I will help do some research. And then I'll write a book and I'll share the proceeds with the defense team and the family. 
And uh, so that sounded like a good idea to Munir's family. So it was Kaiser then who suggested to Al Weirin, why don't we get Grant Cooper? That was Kaiser's suggestion. And Grant Cooper, as I probably talked about on another episode here, was himself in trouble with the law at this point. <laughs> he was representing an associate of the CIA's mob, uh, I don't know what you want to call it, mob liaison is the best term. Johnny Roselli was kind of the liaison figure between the CIA and the mob. You want to meet somebody, you go to Johnny and he'll find you anybody you want. All right, so Johnny had rigged a card cheating scandal at the Friars Club in Beverly Hills. They literally cut a hole in the ceiling while they were playing cards. And then they had an elaborate system of signals so that, you know, the spotter could tell who had what in their hand. And so this got exposed and it wasn't just Johnny. It was a whole bunch of people who were picked up and arrested. And Grant Cooper was representing an associate of Roselli's, not Roselli himself. He had a different lawyer. But somehow <laughs> Grant Cooper got a copy of a grand jury transcript, which is supposed to be remain secret. That was put on his desk. When the judge asked him, who did you get that from? He's like, I got it from no source other than the government. So I wondered if the CIA had gotten that for him to help Roselli get off and his teammates get off because the government was terrified. There's a whole backstory, and I mentioned that a little bit in my book, with Bill Harvey, who had become friends with Roselli and was very concerned that Roselli would give up some CIA secrets if the CIA didn't help him during this trial. So the CIA is known to send their lawyers into cases like that. So it begs the question, was Grant Cooper one of these CIA lawyers? It seems he was at least on what they call the cleared attorneys panel. Clay Shaw had an attorney who was on the cleared attorneys panel. James Earl Ray had his first lawyer was on the cleared attorneys panel. You start to see these patterns, right? So then Grant Cooper comes in and, you know, with all his problems and who's the first guy he wants to hire. This makes me laugh. He wanted to hire Joseph Ball, who had been one of the senior counsels on the Warren Commission. I mean, talk about a cover-up guy. And if Grant Cooper is CIA, don't you think Joseph Ball is too? Because he's not going to bring in somebody with no CIA associations in case some secrets get exposed. That's how this works. So anyway, Ball declines. He's old. You know, He's not interested at that point. So he turns to this guy who's also very old, Russell Parsons. He used to joke that he was 69 years old. He was probably closer to 80 at that point. Um, he had been a mob lawyer and he even had an alias. He went by Lester Harris. <laughs> it's like that name. I don't know. It just, it sounds like something out of a cartoon to me. Um, and then that guy, uh, Russell Parsons, brought in a former LAPD investigator named Michael McGowan. Michael McGowan had been fired from the LAPD for stockpiling weapons that had been, you know, captured at various crimes. He'd also been, you know, convicted of forgery. He was a convicted forger, not just charged, convicted. I mean, he had crimes up the wazoo in his background. Yet somehow Grant Cooper thought he'd be a good addition to Sirhan's team. So, of course, while they're talking to Sirhan and getting evidence, you know, uh, Michael McGowan is running over to his buddies in the LAPD. Hey, you want me to let you know what's going on in our case? And, you know, overtly they're like, oh, we can't do that. That's illegal. We can't talk to you. 
but behind the scenes, I'm pretty sure they did. I'm pretty sure the documents we have on the record denying that they're talking to McGowan are simply the cover for actually talking to McGowan. Now, interestingly enough, this, the LAPD had a whole file on McGowan about a land scandal that included some Arabs in the in the valley in Los Angeles, and it was called the Kassab. And so there's this all these references to the Kassab investigation. I think the name of that became a cover for a double set of books on the RFK case. Because when certain names show up, they're like, oh, see the Kassab file for that. See the Kassab file. It's like there are people who would have had nothing to do with Arabs in a land scandal that had happened many years earlier. Why would that be in that file? But I think that was their code name. And maybe Michael McGowan gave them that. Maybe it was information coming from Michael McGowan. So, so this is the dream team. <laughs> oh, there's one more. Emil Zola Berman. Emil Zola Berman. Uh, had been an intelligence officer during World War II. What a, what a shocker, right? Uh, he was named after the famous Zola who wrote Jacques Hughes, uh, ex trying to exculpate Alfred, Alfred, I can't talk tonight, I'm so sorry, Alfred Dreyfus, who had been accused of a crime in France and the argument was made that it was just blamed on him and he was a patsy. So Zola is named after the guy who basically defended a patsy in a crime, you know, just for the irony, the, the horrible, ironic twist. And similarly, Grant Cooper had represented somebody who had confessed to a crime that he provably didn't commit. And Cooper in that case said, well, under hypnosis, people can be made to confess to things they didn't do. He said that, he wrote that before he ever met or defended Sirhan. It's just incredible to me. And this, this team, you know, and, and now I want to go back to Robert Blair Kaiser because after he served on the defense, he wrote a book. His book was the uh, first to kind of say officially he didn't think Sirhan was entirely alone. He's like, he acted alone, he shot alone, he did it all alone, but I think somebody messed with his mind. And that was kind of the, you know, the little hook at the end of his book. Like, I can't prove it, but I suspect. And and yet Grant Cooper, I mean, uh, Robert Blair Kaiser shows up later after the trial, after Sirhan's been in jail for years. There's a reinvestigation of evidence. And Kaiser's like doing everything he can to suppress evidence of conspiracy, to blame the conspiracists when, when you know, it, it turns out the bullets have been switched and Kaiser basically says, well, maybe the, the researchers switched the bullets. I mean, he's just being terrible. And so I looked really deeply into his background. And it turned out that his boss, when he worked at Time Life, the guy he reported to, had been a former CIA station chief in Beirut during one of our major operations there. And his station, his boss had given kill lists on, you know, of people for to be killed in the operation. <laughs> and when I confronted Kaiser with that, he's like, oh, time life would never have anything to do with the CIA. <laughs> I'm like, do you think I was born yesterday? I mean, there was a whole congressional hearing about this. It was in the church committee, it was in the Pike Committee. So either he is the most naive guy on the planet, or he's a spook. 
and he's lying because that's what you have to do. You have to come up with some defense, you know, because if you're in the CIA, you're never allowed to say you were a CIA. You know, it's very rare that you actually get all the way out and can say that you were a former CIA. That's very rare. So uh, I, I, I've suspected Kaiser for a long time. Kaiser at one point was, he had gone bankrupt. And so he was working as a sex surrogate. <laughs> and if you've ever seen the guy or met the guy, he's not the kind of person that strikes you as somebody people would want to have sex with, to be perfectly honest. You know, there's something a little off-putting about him. So it's like he must have, I don't know. Yeah, I say that for Munir because Munir was always um, very upset. Munir is the younger brother of Sirhan Sirhan. And he said this defense team was so... Spring is in the air at Littleton Coin Company, and we want to help you brighten your collection. Visit us at littletoncoin.com all month long to enjoy 15% off your purchase. With a wide selection of coins, paper money, supplies, and more, Littleton Coin Company has something for every collector's taste. Use promo code SPRING at littletoncoin.com for 15% off your purchase all month long. Restrictions apply. Littleton Coin Company. Serving collectors since 1945. Rude to the family. You know, the family, you know, was able to raise some money from friends to pay a little bit for the defense. These guys all volunteered, ah, you know, oh, we're going to help your son for free. None of them trusted the lawyers. You know, one of the sons was like, didn't even want to talk to Kaiser. Kaiser tried to like set him up to take a photo of him and might have even snuck into his house later. It's not sure if it was Kaiser or an associate of Kaiser who did this. Because the LAPD knew it was a conspiracy, and they were showing photos of the family and the brothers to witnesses in the hopes they could get them to identify them as being one of the people with Sirhan. The problem is none of them look like any of the people actually involved. You know, only Sirhan did, and others look like Sirhan, but no one looked like the brothers. So they were unable to make that happen, but it seemed like Kaiser might have had a role in that, too. And uh, and I, I met him. I talked to him. He's, yeah, I don't know. I, I got a bad taste in my mouth. I, I'm a pretty good judge of character, and I never trusted him. You know, from the first time I met him, I'm like, there's something wrong with this guy. So anyway, and then, um, so we have Berman, who is a drunk, you know, C Cooper, who is totally compromised by the CIA, uh, Kaiser, who maybe doesn't even know he works for the CIA or does know he works for the CIA. And by the way, that agreement to write the book, that happened in a couple other cases, too. In the case of the Boston Strangler, um, there was a different author, Gerald Frank, who's like, I'm going to be part of the defense team and then I'm going to write a book and help. It's like the same template. And that case, by the way, just reeks of MK Ultra because the guy who confessed, Albert DiSalvo, uh, William Bryan, who may have heard, you know, bragged to prostitutes that he hypnotized Sirhan. Well, he also bragged that he hypnotized Albert DeSalvo into confessing to strangling all those women. And Susan Kelly wrote a very good book called The Boston Stranglers, plural, <laughs> where it looks like a cellmate had maybe done a lot of the murders and got this guy DeSalvo to confess to them. I mean, it's, it's incredible. Um, and then there was a, the case of James O'Reilly, where, again, Bradford Huey is like, I'll be a part of your defense team if you let me write a book about you. So when you see these common templates used over and over, you have to 
start questioning what's really going on here. That's why I think it's important not to just study any one case. Study as many as you can because the patterns across them are so substantial. So anyway, all right, so we've got this dream team together, right? And of course, and then we have Sirhan, who again, he can't remember committing the crime. He completely has a memory blank. So when they tell him, look, you're going to have to plead guilty or, or they're going to kill you. It's like, you really have no choice. You know, so Sirhan doesn't know what to do. You know, he doesn't remember doing it, but he doesn't remember not doing it. He just doesn't remember. And so he's at their mercy. So then all these negotiations go on and they bring in a bunch of psychiatrists, mostly on the um, uh, defense side. They bring in psychiatrists and a hypnotist, Bernard Diamond, who, by the way, hypnotized Mark Chapman during his trial, you know, his period. So we're going to hear about that in somebody else's book coming out later. Um, <laughs> you know, but... So Bernard Diamond, he's a hypnotist from Northern California, even though there are some really big names in Southern California, like Jolly West and William Bryan, the head of the American Hypnosis Society. William Bryan had hypnotized, you know, all the super lawyers of the time to prove the power of hypnosis. <laughs> he put them in a room, had them stick out their hands. And then the next thing they knew, they all had a syringe in their hand. And when he said, you know, it, to pull blood, the syringe, like the blood started flowing. And then he woke them up in time to see blood flowing into their syringe, you know, and, and they were all convinced. It's like, oh my God, I didn't even feel you put that in me. I didn't realize what had happened. These guys are good. <laughs> they know what they're doing. You know, the best of them really can manipulate you. So uh, anyway, uh, I, I think I, I wandered. What was the, where was I going? <laughs> I think I think you were getting. I mean, we were in the psychiatrist. I know there was a oh yeah, the a, a slew of different yeah. ones. So I'm assuming right. there's probably right. one or two more. So right. Well, and the yeah. first question was, did Sirhan have brain damage? You know, maybe mm. he had some organic brain damage because you know their whole philosophy from the start is Sirhan did it. The only way we can save him from getting to the death penalty is if we prove he's mentally incompetent. So they look for organic brain damage, which, by the way, is what they ended up saying about Jack Ruby. Didn't help him. All right. Uh, but they were going to try and plead that. And the doctor's like, there's no brain damage here. So then they brought in a bunch of psychiatrists and they gave Sirhan a bunch of Rorsatch tests and all this. And uh, they had them all look at it. And of course, they told them all, this is the guy who killed Robert Kennedy. Do you see it in his Rorsatch test? And of course, they all said, yes, I see it right here. But what's funny is they all saw it differently, like different patterns. And when Dan Brown, a, a completely independent man who reviewed the case many years later, he gave those blind to some colleagues and said, what do you see? And they're all like, eh, they're in the normal range. You know, so obviously if, if you're hiring somebody, you know, you're the defense team or you're the prosecution, you kind of know what they want you to find and you're going to give it to them. That's the sad truth about our legal system. There's not a lot of honesty that happens. And in fact, in my book, I really make the point that in the, the whole premise of the American justice system is that in an adversarial thing where you have like a defense and a prosecution, the arguments between them will cause the truth to surface. But they didn't consider a case like this where neither side wanted the truth to surface. And I, you know, I actually think we should have a third person whose job is only to figure out what happened. 
whether it benefits the defense or the prosecution shouldn't matter. They just need to figure out what happened because neither side is about the truth. The prosecution doesn't care about the truth. The defense doesn't care about the truth. They just want to win for their client and they want to win for their client. And so the truth has no advocate in our courtrooms. And that's an important point. And having been a juror, I've seen it from the inside, and it's kind of appalling, the discussions among the jurors. Well, he's an illegal alien. Like, that automatically makes him guilty. I'm like, what? You know, or he was in a house with, you know, where drugs were being hidden in cabinets. And I'm like, there's a purse on the table. Am I in possession of that other woman's purse with all of you sitting here? I don't think so. <laughs> you know, I am not in possession of it. I, I could take possession if I ran out of house with it. Anyway, you, you understand. Our, our justice system is deeply flawed, which is very unfortunate. So, so Sirhan has all this going against him. He's got, you know, the defense teams, and they're, they're still trying to decide if they're going to plead him guilty and just try and and get him sent to a mental institution. And what happens is since all the psychologists agreed, that does become the recommendation. And in fact, the prosecution even came. Evel Younger, who, by the way, had been former OSS, now DA of Los Angeles <laughs> during the trial. You know, what a surprise there, right? All these intelligence connections. Also worked with J. Edgar Hoover, buddy, buddy, you know. Um, Several members of the prosecution team, Buck Compton, who was involved in the HBO series Band of Brothers, Buck Compton had worked in intelligence, you know, it's like, and, and there he is on the DA staff prosecuting Sirhan. But even Evel Younger said, Sirhan, you know, it looks like we're going to lose this case. I think we should just all plead him guilty and let him go straight to a mental institution. And then it's the judge, Judge Herbert Walker, who received the case after Judge Alarcon, who had issued a gag order, by the way, to all witnesses and said, you can't talk to anybody about this, which people didn't know meant until the trial is over. They thought that meant forever. <laughs> so a lot of them still haven't talked to people to this day. Um, but Judge Walker had a nephew who was in trouble with the law. He'd been accused of killing a guy. He was in jail. And so he kind of had something hanging over his head too. So, you know, all of them had something they could have been blackmailed with. And in fact, one of the people that uh, had been on the list of names to use was Luke McKissick, who later became Sirhan's lawyer in the 80s. Um, and Luke McKissick was a pedophile and a drunk and a drug user and CIA because often those things go together because that's how you blackmail somebody and, and you've got a perfectly deniable asset. And, you know, that's the guy who kind of ran out the clock on a lot of Sirhan's legal possible defenses. He's also the guy who got Sirhan to do a taped interview with David Frost, which is often brought up, but Sirhan confessed on TV. And Munir said, Lisa, that show was entirely scripted start to finish. All of Sirhan's answers were scripted for him. And Luke McKissick told him, if you say exactly this, he will get paroled. And of course, then he didn't. So, and, and now they had this on video of Sirhan confessing. So, you know, this guy has not ever been served, you know, fairness. And and when they showed Sirhan the notebook for the first time, 
one of the things that was taken from his bedroom at the house was a notebook in which he had written very repetitively, RFK must die, RFK must die, RFK must die, all over one page, along with randomly interspersed, please pay to the order of, please pay to the order of. I mean, it looks like somebody's offering him money to kill RFK. Now, in his waking state, Sirhan looks at this. He's like, what the hell is this? This looks like the rantings of a madman. He's like, I don't remember writing this. And it is possible he never wrote it. The initial response by the people who looked at the handwriting said it, they couldn't really match it to Sirhan's. Now, later, of course, everybody changed their mind. Oh, yeah, it's definitely Sirhan's writing. So I don't know. I really don't know. But if he did write it, it looks like it was written under hypnosis and uh, it's something called automatic writing. And when they hypnotized him with Bernard Diamond before the trial began and asked him, you know, to write something, he started writing RFK Must Die. But I've seen that page and I've seen the notebook page. And the writing is very different, but he's writing the same thing. So I don't, you know, the problem with Diamond is I don't trust him not to have given him a specific hypnotic suggestion to write RFK Must Die because I don't have the tapes of that session. I don't know what instruction he gave him to make him write that. So that's a problem too. But anyway, so so we've got Sirhan, we've got all these corrupt individuals who all, you know, they all assume somebody's guilty. Now, Kaiser does figure out he's not a dumb guy. He, and he writes a memo to Cooper. He goes, you know, that we got a problem here because Sirhan's in front of Kennedy, but Kennedy's shot from behind. And the witnesses put Kennedy, I mean, put Sirhan about three feet in front of Kennedy, but Kennedy's shot from an inch from behind. And Cooper's like, what do you want me to do? Do you want me to say he's part of a conspiracy and we didn't catch the other conspirators? Do you want me to say that? Do you think that's going to save his life? And I'm like, well, it might, because clearly if there's another shooter, then maybe Sirhan's innocent. You know, Maybe the story is much bigger than we know. But, but Kaiser just buckled, doesn't even mention that in his own book. So that's why I'm not sure. He told me that after Cooper had died, he said, I still have the memo. I'm like, yeah, but when did you write it? You know, so I don't know. I, you know, it's, it's impossible to know sometimes who's telling the truth. And that's why it's very legitimate to have questions and accusations because people who don't have anything to hide don't spend a lot of years hiding it, right? Anyway, Cooper in later years wrote, oh, if I had known all this evidence of conspiracy, I would have freed him. It's like, how could you not see the evidence of conspiracy? He had to read a few of those witness interviews. You only have to read a few to see that there's a serious problem with the case. It really is that self-evident. I encourage anybody, there's a site, maryfarrell.org. You can literally browse. If you search and you search more than three times, they want you to pay for it. But you can browse from the documents and just start reading the RFK files and you'll find the witness interviews and and see what you think. You know, it's, it's pretty obvious he couldn't have done it. And if I can find it and all these other researchers look at it see, go, say, oh, my gosh, it's that obvious. Don't you think these high price paid attorneys could have figured that out? And Michael McGowan is kind of the worst. He's with Sirhan the most. Sirhan did not trust him, did not like him. He would talk to Munir like, I want new lawyers. I don't trust any of these guys. Munir didn't trust any of them. This family is not rich. I mean, they basically, 
there were like six or seven of them all living in one little house in Pasadena, you know, kind of a two bedroom house with all these boys in it. I feel sorry for the mother. <laughs> it's a cute little house. I've been there. I've seen Sirhan's bedroom. It's not changed much since he left. The first time I was over, Munir gave me lemons off the lemon tree in the back because he had way too many. He's like, please take these with you. Super nice guy. Very generous. Um, and that's the thing. Again, this is a nice family. This was a middle class family. Sirhan, all the neighbors knew him. Not one of the neighbors could believe he had done this crime because they knew him. He was just this nice, sweet guy. It didn't fit at all what they knew about him. And so the defense team, you know, had to really do some shenanigans to try to get people to say things that made Sirhan look bad. And of course, whoever set Sirhan up, you know, evidently sent him to the range the day of the primary, and he was there for supposedly six hours. And again, I'm not 100% sure it was Sirhan. I'm not sure it wasn't. Sirhan thinks he was, so I'm, you know, inclined to believe he did. You know, he was in the, I think, what do they call it? The ROTC, I think, in community college. He had participated in that. And he liked shooting at targets. He wasn't shooting at, you know, people. <laughs> he wasn't hunting animals. He was shooting at targets. And uh, anyway, it's it's just a tragedy. And so as we get to the trial, and I don't want to get too far into it, but I, oh, yeah. I do want to just get to like the opening. Oh, I'm sorry. I want to get to the juror selection, what happened mm -hmm. right before that, because this reminded me of the McVeigh case too, because in the McVeigh case in the prologue that I've read so far, uh, his own lawyer basically said he's going to plead guilty, right? They did the same thing with Sirhan. His lawyers leaked to the press, or the judge, I'm not sure who actually leaked it to the press, but somebody leaked to the press that they were going to plead him guilty of manslaughter to get him to avoid the death sentence. And when this leaked to the press, obviously that was a problem because the judge is like, look, the people want a trial. They deserve a trial. I don't care if you all agree that he should go to a mental institution, which would have been so convenient for an MK Ultra victim, right? Send him back to the, for more programming. <laughs> um, but anyway, the, the judge was the one who said, no, we're going to have a trial no matter what. And one of the witnesses, here's another thing that Sirhan's team did to sell him out. When you hire these psychiatrists stuff, there are strict privacy laws in California. The prosecution would not have had access to those records unless the defense team chose to share them and definitely wouldn't have had access to Sirhan himself. The defense team let the prosecution psychiatrist, Seymour Pollock, interview Sirhan and hypnotize Sirhan. And then, you know, they thought they were doing this to engender trust and that he'd be on board and they'd all plead him guilty and they'd all avoid a trial where all this evidence of conspiracy might surface, right? And and Seymour Pollock's like, you know, I'm really undecided. I'm going to have to wait until the trial to see what I think about all this. And so those plans went out the window. But meanwhile, headlines all over L.A., you know, Sirhan to plead guilty of killing Robert F. Kennedy. I mean, every juror saw that. When they interviewed the jurors, and they did, the voir dire proceedings are, you know, they are in the record. And you can read all the questions and answers the judges and the different teams asked of him, prosecution and defense, because they all get to interview you before you get to be on the jury. And, you know, all of them's like, well, I did hear that. I did see that. But 
that won't change my opinion, you know, or that won't affect me. I'm like, baloney, that will affect you. I mean, right there to me, that should have been a mistrial. That trial should have been moved out of state where people hadn't seen those headlines, maybe weren't following the case so closely, or at least out of Los Angeles. Uh, but it wasn't. And one of the jurors even went so far as to say, well, since they were going to plead him guilty of manslaughter, it'd be really hard not to find him guilty of manslaughter. And they let this guy stay on the jury. Again, mistrial. Mistrial. You've got a juror who's already said, I'm prejudiced to convict this guy. They're like, great, come with us. We want you. <laughs> That's so wrong. That's so wrong. So uh, anyway, so they finally get the jury seated. By the way, that one guy, because that really could have been a legal mistrial thing. Ironically, by coincidence, maybe not. His father dies right before the end of the trial. He has to step down. An alternative juror steps in. And so if somebody had been thinking, wow, that could be a problem later, well, problem solved. So, you know, sad for the, the guy and his father and his family. Um, but anyway, so now we've got the prosecution guys, and some of them are drunks too, and some of them are corrupt too, and a lot of them come from intelligence and, you know, it's kind of, and the, the sad thing is the prosecution, the defense, they really acted like one unified team during this trial. Every time I read the transcript, it's like, if the prosecution missed a step, the defense would like jump in and point out what they missed to make sure they didn't go past that. There's no way any honest person could read that trial transcript and say Sirhan got a good defense. Uh, there are plenty who've claimed to have read it and say, he did. Either they didn't read it or they are not a good judge of what's real. <laughs> so anyway, and so then there's like the psychological gamemanship as the trial starts. The prosecution, for example, the first day, the prosecution makes their opening statement. Usually this is you know, maybe an hour, two hours. He talks for eight hours. He fills the entire day. <laughs> And so the jurors have had this like onslaught of information, all negative, all Sirhan did it alone. They go home and sleep on it. Don't tell me that doesn't have an effect because you can't really object during the opening statement, right? You know, it's like you know, no witnesses are being called yet. It's an unfair advantage. That same uh, prosecutor, Dave Fitz, he does the same thing, of course, at the end of the trial. He takes up a whole day so that there's no contradicting him, no interrupting him, and sends the jurors home with his words ringing in their head. And again, I feel like there should be a time limit. <laughs> you know? Say what you need to say and say it in an hour or two, and then you're out. <laughs> and the other side gets to make their opening statement. Because by the time 24 hours has passed, the jury's already decided Syrian's guilty. Even if they're trying to say, oh, I'm keeping an open mind, it's pretty hard to keep an open mind when you've only heard one side and you heard it for 20, you know, for eight hours straight. So anyway, I feel like I'm, I'm <laughs> doing all the talking here. Oh, no, <laughs> you're all right. Uh, as long as you, I think okay. we're, I, I think we've kind of hit, we hit the characters. We, we got a little bit into trial. I think next episode we'll start going to saga. I think the big takeaway here, as you brought up with the criminal justice system is there's supposed to be, I guess in a sense, supposed to be four parties. You're supposed to have the defense, 
Uh, you're supposed to have the prosecution. You're supposed to have the judge, and you're supposed to have the jury. So you're supposed to have yeah. the the state the or independent system. Yeah. yeah, yeah, and then then like their peers, and then obviously the the, the party defense. But it sounds like to me we re in reality had two two parties. Well, three, yeah, yeah two parties: the judge, yeah, the, the defense, the prosecution. Well, I, I, well, well, they all work for the same client. It sounds like the the, the CIA, and then you have the jury. Is what it looks right, like. Right, right. So, yeah. Blind to all of that. Right, right. So I think I think oh. we've hit most of that. Um, but if, if there's any other things you think so far as characters or maybe setting up, because like I said, next episode we'll go into the saga of kind of the the legal. Uh, the legal challenges and kind of because I'm sure there there were probably so many trials. I know I know you know not to jump ahead. At one point he got the death sentence, but then that got switched, and then and then obviously then later we end up having you know the multitude of probably appeals, and then probably from oh there, yeah, and I think so, eighteen so parole yeah. hearings now <laughs> yeah, exactly. or something. Oh my gosh. So I mean I don't yeah. I don't think we'll go into each individual one. We can go as deep into legal stuff as you want, whatever you think is pertinent. Yeah. Uh, I think at least the initial stuff would probably be important, especially, you know, when it gets into like, you know, the, the, how we end up in the death sense and how we got out of it and et cetera, et cetera. Uh, there is yeah. a lot. I'm very much looking forward to hear from you as you get further into Aberration, Heart, Real Land of the Real. I wish mm -hmm. the MK Ultra section was earlier in the book. It is it towards the end. I know. I want to skip that. ahead, but I'm like, no, no. As an <laughs> author, massive. we craft our work very carefully to tell the story a certain way. Nothing pisses me off more than people who jump around. So, yeah. <laughs> so I'm trying to be good and read it in order, but I want to get to that chapter. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure a few months from now I'll get a text from you like, oh my God, this MK Ultra. I mean, I'm sure a lot of it's stuff you've already covered, but it goes so deep uh, oh yeah. it's so sinister <laughs> oh you know yeah and it yeah, really what's... does make you realize like oh my god because a lot of this stuff is stuff that was from like the 40s 50s 60s and you're like holy crap they are so far ahead in this game and oh yeah realize the extent to which what they're capable of and then you look at it from modern day what they're willing to do the lengths to which they'll go it, and the, the, the depravity that the, the uh, uh, you know of it it is ridiculous mm -hmm. i actually just got in the mail today uh the 1982 cia handbook on interrogation <laughs> so, oh wow yeah <laughs> so yeah. which which that was mentioned in that uh which yeah which that got passed off to the south american countries that they started using and it, it it once you start realizing the saga of the stuff they will do and what they're capable of it really starts connecting a lot of dots uh it it, mm -hmm. it yeah it, it is funny too we brought up earlier the the guy with the sex it is weird how, how common that is how common is it really the, the, the <laughs> like the cia being philanderers like jolly west supposedly had a bunch of illegitimate children as well so oh, there, really? there's oh, slight wow. insinuations yeah. that like you know and he wasn't like a looker either so it's like how are you getting all these ladies to sleep with you and you have an extensive knowledge of mind control yeah exactly <laughs> are you using some of that yeah yeah so it's like what's going on here uh but with with that uh i think we're at a good spot if you want to go ahead and let people know where they can find your work we'll pick this up again soon uh and in, in, but I'll, I'll let you go yeah, I was going to say, go to, go to uh, well, it's not Twitter anymore, is it? It's called X, x.com. Still Twitter to me. <laughs> It'll always be Twitter to me. But uh, I am x.com, I guess it's x.com slash at Lisa Pease, just like my name without the space. And look at the pin tweet. That's a talk I gave that was aired on C-SPAN um, 
I, I've posted some of the other appearances there. Uh, I used to maintain a couple websites. I really don't anymore. So I'm not sending people there, but if you want to hear what I'm saying currently or reading currently, it'll be on Twitter or X. <laughs> yeah. God, I, ha I hate what he did. I hate that he killed Twitter. The bluebird of happiness, man. It's gone. It's gone. X formerly known as Twitter. I'll still call it Twitter forever. I don't even, I don't even try to, uh, try to do it. Like, I don't know. I just don't care that much. Just like, uh, one of the times I went on Timcast, one of the things I got the most heat for was that I kept calling Vivek Ramaswamy. Well, it's Vivek. I kept calling him Vivek and I'm like, okay, well, I don't know if Vivek sounds right to me and who cares? <laughs> <laughs> exactly. I mean, you're not Vivek... a personal friend. You're yeah. never going to yeah. be a personal friend. I mean, you if he came to me personally, I was like, I really would appreciate if you called me Vivek. I'm like, okay, all right, fair. But I don't think he cares. <laughs> what yeah. little he just wants he your said. vote. He doesn't care. <laughs> So, but with that, uh, we will get out of here. Please uh, like, share, subscribe, comment, all that good stuff. If you want to follow me at Tower Gang Jose on X.com, formerly known as Twitter, uh, if you want to support me, Patreon.com, Snow Jose 2020. That's where you get these stuff early. You can ask questions. Uh, little known thing people don't realize is the $10 level. You can uh, curate an episode. A lot of people don't know that, but that could even be you being a guest. What that means basically is bring me an idea, guest, whatever, and you know I'll try my best to make it happen. If it's something I can't work with, I just won't. So it's like so I like, you know, I reserve that. But you know, for the most part, I mean, whatever. If you bring me an idea, if you want to be the guest, if you feel like you can give me a talk on it, I'll give it a shot. I don't care. I'll fit you in the schedule somewhere. But uh, yeah, with that, we are out of here. I appreciate your time, Lisa. We'll do this again soon. Thanks. Bye. Spring is in the air at Littleton Coin Company, and we want to help you brighten your collection. Visit us at littletoncoin.com all month long to enjoy 15% off your purchase. With a wide selection of coins, paper money, supplies, and more, Littleton Coin Company has something for every collector's taste. Use promo code SPRING at littletoncoin.com for 15% off your purchase all month long. Restrictions apply. Littleton Coin Company, serving collectors since 1945.